Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little-known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Welcome to the Treasures of the Texas Collection, brought to you by Baylor University Libraries, KWBU-FM, and William and Kathleen Wardlaw. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then the life's work of photographer Fred A. Gildersleeve of Waco is surely worth several million. For more than half a century, the diminutive lens man documented nearly every aspect of life in his heart of Texas locale. The Texas collection at Baylor University is home to about 1,400 glass negatives of those images he crafted the old-fashioned way with a box camera on a wooden tripod. Doing all his focusing under the black drape and rather infamously employing a pan of flash powder for lighting. Terry Joe Ryan, professional writer and vice chairperson of the Waco History Project, has long admired the prolific photographer's work, both as an amateur sleuth snooping into the city's days gone by, but also in her professional capacity as an alumna of the Waco Tribune Herald. Terry Joe joins us today to share some of her discoveries from searching the Gildersleeve archives. Welcome, Terry Joe. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to telling Fred's story. <laughs> well, what can you tell us about Fred Gildersleeve? Well, when I was writing my columns uh, for the Brass's Past uh, feature of the Waco Tribune Herald, uh, anything that took place between the years, let's say, 1910, 1930, uh, absolutely I had to find a Gildersleeve image or two to help illustrate those stories. His, his old business slogan was, after all, quote, photographs tell the story, unquote. <laughs> you know, and he was everywhere in those days. He took pictures of people, famous ones, not so famous, uh, you know, assemblies from May fates to church picnics to uh, <clears throat> lynch mobs and Klan rallies. Uh, he snapped buildings, construction, art, architecture, agriculture, businesses, schools, ranching, advertising campaigns, Shriner parades, visiting circuses, sporting events of all kinds, theatrical productions, houses of worship, military installations, funerals, weddings, politicians, cowboys and Indians, and streetcars, planes, trains, and automobiles. I mean, that's just to name, you know, a couple of dozen of his favorite subjects, but he kept really busy in those years, and he seemed to have this insatiable curiosity for all things Waco, people, places, and happenings. Terry Joe, most people in Waco that have lived here for a while either know the Gildersleeve name or they have at least seen one of his pictures. But most of us don't know very much about the man. When Gildersleeve arrived in Waco, where was he living and where was he from and what did he start off doing? Well, Gildy, as, as he was known by everybody, uh, moved to Waco, we think about 1905, on what he termed, quote, a borrowed $10 bill and established his own studio. And uh, he, you know, was quite the spunky little shutterbug. He was born in June of 1881 in Boulder, Colorado, and his family later moved to Kirksville, Missouri, where he grew up. But uh, before he received his first camera, we think it was about 19, I'm sorry, 1898, uh, when he was a teenager, it was a box Kodak that his mother gave him, uh, he had a, a sideline career as a teenager as a racehorse jockey at the county fairs there in the Show Me State. 
Uh, he eventually went to this, what they called the State Normal School in Kirksville, Missouri, and he used that Kodak to snap pictures of students. I think he was kind of working his way through college. Uh, he would develop them, print them, and sell them for about 25 cents each. And if you put that into, t- into today's money, that would be about $6 a piece. Still a good deal. I think so, yeah. And then there was uh, one little hitch, though. Uh, at the time, he could only work on the really bright days because his printing was done out in the sunlight on what was called solio paper. Oh. But he, uh, he kept experimenting and learning along the way, and he went to a photography school in Effingham, Illinois, and worked in the Chicago area for about a year and a half. And somewhere in those years, he somehow made the acquaintance of uh, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt uh-huh. during the Spanish-American War. And so there's this charming little tale that several years later, after the war was over, Gildersleeve and his mother were in St. Louis uh, when uh, T.R. was there for some sort of a political rally. And, look, mother, there's Teddy, said the young Gildersleeve, and mortified, his mother scolded him, son, don't call him Teddy. Teddy, that's Mr. Roosevelt. <laughs> but Gildersleeve led her right over to the Rough Rider and introduced her. And she was bowled over when she discovered that the former president of the United States was just an old pal of her boy. That would be quite a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard Fred Gildersleeve often referred to as the Matthew Brady of Waco. Why is that? Well, besides using the same kinds of photographic techniques and equipment as that Civil War era photographer did, but just 50 years later down the line, he was just as prolific in documenting everything in his place and time. He lovingly and thoroughly chronicled the doings and beings of Waco for about five decades. And so he was like the right man at the right time in Waco's history because he arrived in this part of the country just as the still young city was undertaking a building boom and bustling with civic boosterism. Now, that is a mouthful of alliteration. (laughs) I'm entirely too fond of that, that's for sure. But, you know, Waco was a city blessed with an abundance of ambitious guys of uh, civic and commercial talents in those days. Uh, You might recall the names architects like Roy E. Lane and Milton Scott. Um, You know, they were going places and they took Gildy right along with them. Uh, At the time, right at the turn of the century, what I like to call the ragtime era, of course, Waco had recently organized its Young Men's Business League, and it was a precursor of what would today be the Greater Waco Chamber of Commerce. And so when Gildy got to town, he was quickly ingratiating himself with the right people as one of the doers in our community. He was a supporter of the civic activities, and thus he was invited to shoot a lot more people, places, and things in a city of this size than probably most other photographers were. And so that's how he became known as the Matthew Brady of Waco. Uh, not only because he was so thoroughly covering the people, places, and events of Greater Waco and the uh, environment around here for half a century, but he also liked much of the same equipment. Uh, As you alluded to a little bit earlier, he liked that Brady-style box camera, and he balanced it on a wooden tripod, and he'd pull his black cloak over his head to do the focusing before he'd pull the trigger on that pan of flash powder, and he was most reluctant to convert to flash bulbs. He didn't even use those until the end of his professional shooting career in the 1950s. I think we all have images of the old movies where they had Mm. those big flashes. I can only Mm -hmm. imagine some of these scenes. I know he liked to use quite a few. Um, But his photography sounded a little bit primitive for the 19th century technology that he was using instead of when he lived in the 20th Mm -hmm. century. Um, Is there some reason why he decided to use that type of technology? Well, he he definitely was a photographer of the old school. You would say that. Uh, He liked that uh, clear, even lighting you would get by using the flash powder. Uh, When he died in 1958, the Waco News Tribune uh, wrote an editorial, and they noted that whenever he arrived on the scene to take a picture, considerable commotion commenced. Quote, when he touched off the explosive flash powder, the light was perfect for a split second. 
but the surroundings were hidden by smoke for many minutes afterward. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, when Gildy came to photograph a residential room, everyone cleared out ahead of time, sort of like they do today when the insect fogging people come to treat the house. (laughs) So I just love the mental picture of that. Um, Incidentally, having Gildy come to shoot your uh, commission or an assignment around town must have been quite the event because he first would tool around in his to on a motorcycle in a sidecar and in the sidecar he'd be toting his equipment or sometimes an apprentice with him and later on he had a well-known model t that was a familiar sight around town that had his you know business logo and slogan on the side of the car what an image <laughs> most waco history books terry wouldn't be complete without the image of the prosperity banquet Tell us about that photograph. Ah, he considered this one of his personal best. It's the image that actually made him nationally famous, and it came really early in his career here. In April of 1911, uh, an event known as sometimes called the Victory Banquet or the Prosperity Banquet, it was planned, of course, by that Young Men's Business League, and it was to celebrate the construction of the Amicable Life Insurance Company building at 5th and Austin Avenue. And it was a 22-story structure, Texas's first skyscraper, and its tallest building at that time. And uh, nowadays, of course, it's known to most folks as the Alico. And that building was as much an emblem of Waco's prosperous future in that long-ago era as the suspension bridge over the Brazos was a symbol of its rugged past. So he was commissioned to document this gala affair. And with the help of many assistants, he rigged flash powder charges above the doorways along the block of 5th Street between Austin and Franklin Avenues. And these were synchronized to ignite simultaneously. I just The technological <laughs> challenge just boggles the mind. Uh, the illumination of these thousands of faces in that one instant at the height of the festivities made for the most sensational night photograph taken at to that time in this country. And so this image was reproduced in publications all around the country, and Gildy got it belatedly copyrighted, but it gave him a name across America, and he showed that kind of ingenuity time and time again. And he became famous. He was very much an innovator. What other ways, in what other ways was he an innovator in the photographic arts? Well, uh, around 1910, uh, he was hired by an eastern syndicate to shoot pictures of a plantation operation on an island off the Mexican coast, and thus you could say he pioneered the field of industrial photography. Uh, He also took the first commercial aerial photographs in Texas in 1914. Just think about that. That's only, what, about a decade uh, from the invention of flight by hanging uh, halfway out of the cockpit of a plane flown by pilot Marion Sterling. Four years later, when World War I Army Base, uh, the one that was came here to Waco, known as Richfield, was in operation, he designated an honorary. He was designated an honorary navigator by the military pilots, and so he took great advantage of that position to experiment with aerial photography. Uh, you know, in, in my research, I was thinking, you know, you could almost say that Gildy was a pioneer documentarian of the military-industrial complex. Because during those hectic days of World War I, uh, 1917 through 1919, Waco was transformed by the arrival of Camp MacArthur and the Richfield Army Air Base. So he was there to provide this prolific record to the officials in Washington and Waco from that uh, marathon building blitz to erect the airplane hangars in the tent city and the... Uh, including mundane scenes of the Doughboys' daily lives. You know, I've I've seen pictures of, you know, the guys doing their laundry or cooking in the mess hall, that sort of thing. Uh, But uh, tons of these really daring aerial shots of Waco landmarks, you know, from the air. And so, you know, he was a small man with a big camera, and he tried to capture everything he could. Well, I can't imagine just going up in a plane at that time when they're so brand new would be so scary. But to hang out of a plane and shoot (laughs) photographs is just... I mean, just as wacky. Blows my mind. Yeah, just as wacky and nutty as the pilots themselves. Yeah. 
There's a famous shot from the early 1900s of the Cotton Palace. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. I mean, this was probably his greatest technical triumph as a photograph. And, of course, it came in a bit of characteristic Waco-centric community boosterism. Uh, about 1916, he decided that he wanted to take one of his favorite shots, which was of uh, the Texas Cotton Palace, um, you know, the exhibition hall that was open in Waco from 1910 to about 1930. Right. Mm-hmm. And he enlarged it to the, at then at that time, unheard size of 10 feet across. Wow. And so in order to do this, he had to construct a special large shallow wooden trough to float his developing development chemicals in, you know. Mm-hmm. So instead of scoffing at such a notion, the people at the Eastman uh, factory in uh, Rochester, New York, uh, bought into his dream, and they sent down a technician with a bolt of photographic paper to bring this great print to life, all 120 inches long of it. And uh, it was the world's largest photographic print at that time, and Gildy gave his proud permission for the image to t- be taken on tour around the country. And I'm sure the city fathers of Waco were probably thrilled to have it touting one of the star attractions of our city. Wasn't 1916 the year Gildersleeve shot one of the most notorious sets of photographs in history? So it's a pretty painful topic to a lot of people here in Waco, but, you know, because it was just so terribly shocking to our modern sensibilities. But sadly, it was entirely in keeping with the sometimes savage times in which he worked. But Gildersleeve was witness to one of the most infamous public lynchings of American history, an event called the Waco Horror. Waco at the time, you know, really fancied itself the Athens of Texas or the city with a soul because it had so many churches and colleges, you know, but thanks to these really haunting images, Waco became associated with this barbaric behavior. And so, you know, for Gildy, he was shooting it as just a kind of another slice of life in his adopted hometown like it was a football game or a grade school pageant. And the rest of the nation was aghast, of course, you know. Now, uh, historian Patricia Bernstein uh, wrote a book a few years ago called The First Waco Horror. And she said that these, you know, grisly photographs of a town's populace torturing a black teenager to death, you know, helped galvanize public opinion across the country against lynching as a way of maintaining the social order. And Although the act of taking the pictures was, <clears throat> quote, despicable, she said, the photographs themselves are an indelible legacy to Southern history. I, th- I think, you know, kind of the, the irony of Gildersleeve's career is that outside of Waco, these are the images he is most remembered for, not all those ragtime-era portraits of handsome homes and bustling commerce. Right. You know, and uh, I, what really blew my mind is uh, he wrote a surprise—Gildersleeve uh, himself wrote this surprisingly candid letter to W.E.B. Du Bois, the editor-in-chief of the NAACP's publication called The Crisis. Uh, he was responding to questions about his lynching images, and he said, quote— We have quit selling the mob photos. This step was taken because our city dads objected on the grounds of bad publicity. As we want to be boosters and not knockers, we agreed to stop our sales. (laughs) Wow. Well, I know that you found a lot of surprising things in the research, and that certainly is um, one of the sadder stories. But um, what else did you find that was surprising about Gildersleeve and, and his work? Well, I was, uh, yeah, frankly, I was pretty surprised at some of the stuff I had found. Uh, for example, I had never heard that sometime in his early years he had lost a finger in his left hand to some kind of an accident. And so when people asked him about it, he would say, hypo ate it off. And hypo, of course, is that chemical used in the photo developing process. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I never did find out how he lost it. 
Uh, also, he was so, you know, antic during his long career, I'd wondered if he had ever settled down and had a family. Uh, in fact, there's this one Dallas Morning News profile on him that described him as, quote, a lifelong bachelor, unquote. But that really wasn't correct. Um, apparently, he had a 30-year-long marriage uh, that uh, didn't have any children involved, and it ended sometime in the 1940s. And that un- that great personal loss of his, unfortunately, resulted in a great terrible blow to Waco history as well. Uh, because uh, sometime in the 1930s through the 1940s, he had switched from using glass plate negatives that, you know, the old style Brady stuff that he enjoyed uh, to the celluloid or acetate negatives. And so after his marriage dissolved, those acetate negatives ended up in a back alley trash bin, if you can believe that. And uh, it's yeah, Roger Conger, the Waco historian who kind of befriended Gildersleeve at the end of his uh, career, um, said that the ex-wife apparently regarded those negatives as just so much rubbish. Uh, And so that missing collection, we believe, of the mid-30s to the 40s included major athletic events, of course, and the coming to Waco of industrial giant companies like General Tire and Rubber Company, Owens, Illinois Glass, you know, as well as those military installations of World War II. So you're saying that most of his life's work was lost during the divorce. I mean, almost all of it, and more of his legacy would have been lost if it weren't for Roger Conger's intervention. In his oral memoirs at the Texas Collection at Baylor University, uh, Roger Conger said he was only about a year old when he first met Gildersleeve for the first time, and he was a babe in arms for a family photograph in China Spring around 1911, and all those Congers, great and small, had gathered inside or around his dad's first automobile, which was a 1910 Ford, and uh, they'd done so for their Gildersleeve moment. Well, anyway, Congers saw him on a weekly basis in the 1940s because both were attending First Presbyterian Church of Waco, and uh, sadly, um, Gildersleeve Gildy had already started his uh, physical decline at the time. Mm. Well, during those years, Conger said Gildy had promised to give him the glass negative someday when he was, quote, through with them, unquote. But one day, Conger was able to persuade Gildy to let him at least have a peek at the negatives. So Conger reported that behind Gildersleeve's Ethel Avenue home in a moldering little backyard shed behind a rusty padlock door, they discovered what turned out to be a sickening sight, about half of the precious glass negatives, at least two decades of Waco history were in thousands of pieces oh. on the ground. And because evidently the accumulated weight of the negatives was too heavy for the shelving and it collapsed, perhaps years before, one upon each other, pancaking. Mm. And so <clears throat> Congress said, I can recall that Gildy stood there at the door, staring in stunned silence for several seconds. Um, his reaction then would have to be described as a highly pungent outburst. <laughs> One can only imagine. you aren't going into detail yes, about that. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, indeed. And so although Gildy was tempted to just walk away from the whole tragic mess, Conger said he was able to prevail upon him to let him at least try and salvage what he could. So Conger worked for several days carefully retrieving all the unbroken or only partially wrecked negatives. And many of those made their appearance in Conger's 1964 book, Pictorial History of Waco. And Gildersleeve was true to his word. He kept his word in the last will and testament, and he bequeathed all those glass negatives, about 1,400 of them, to Conger. So Conger, in turn, later gave those to the Texas collection. Was Gildersleeve still shooting in the 1950s? That would have put him in about his 70s. Yeah. Well, he had developed a cordial relationship with young Jimmy Willis, the photographer in the 40s who kept the Waco newspapers pretty much supplied with images and mm-hmm. uh, some in uh, very much in the Fred Gildersleeve mold. Um, so Willis would help you know, his mentor out by developing some of the prints of the Gildersleeve's few commissions. But yeah, he was slowing down his career at that point. And uh, the, the little extra jobs would you know, kind of keep him in cigarette money. And uh, there, 
there's a pic a delightful picture I saw in one book that uh, of Gildy smoking a Chesterfield cigarette from his blackened silver holder, his one of his <laughs> small dogs in his lap on the porch of his home, and uh, yeah, kind of jaunty, almost FDR style kind of picture there, you know. But uh, yeah, the fifties were kind of a sad decade for Gildy because his health was starting to deteriorate, and so Roger Congress stepped in as like a caretaker of sorts, and he he uh, wrote for a, an alumni magazine in the seventies a reminiscence about Gildersleeve, and he said, "quote I visited him." almost daily, and cut his hair and even shaved him. And with the help of some church members, I arranged for his funeral, including his burial and a bronze marker for his grave. And so Fred Gildersleeve uh, eventually died on February 26, 1958, and he's uh, buried at Waco Memorial Park. Well, given his place, time, and occupation, I imagine Gildersleeve was able to rub elbows with a number of notable people from that era. Can you name some others besides the president, of course, which you've already mm-hmm. named. Mm. Well, uh, indeed, uh, you know, he got to shoot lots of the celebrities of his day, and boy, I would have loved to have seen whatever he was able to capture of, like, visiting vaudeville stars, but uh, some of the people I do know uh, that he, sh- he was able to shoot in his career was, like, uh, the evangelist Billy Sunday, um, presidential contender Al Smith uh, at the 1928 Democratic Convention down in Houston. Um, of course, we mentioned Teddy Roosevelt before. He also got to take pictures of Calvin Coolidge, uh, William Howard Taft uh, in Dallas in 1909 because Gildy had been named the official photographer of the State Fair of Texas at that point. But, uh, you know, one of the things I found so interesting is that Gildersleeve apparently had, you know, actually very little regard for history per se. You know, Congress says that Gildy wasn't really a student of local history as much as the un witting chronicler of it, you know. He, he came to recognize eventually the role that he had played as the documentarian in his later years because people would start to come calling to buy those prints of yesteryear. Uh, one example would be like uh, one of the pioneer aviator, a man named Cal Rogers, circling the amicable building uh, in, its, in his uh, airplane after the building was completed in 1911. And Rogers was making the first coast-to-coast air journey that fall, and he was sponsored by a grape soda company making something called Vin Fizz. <laughs> and so that was the, the Vin Fizz trip. And uh, of course, uh, Rogers became a national celebrity from this act of daring do. And unfortunately, uh, Rogers died the following spring off the California coast when he crashed into a flock of birds during an exhibition flight, which I also found kind of ironic because you know, it's even still have, happening. It's yeah. still <laughs> happening with planes crashing into birds, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, so, um, oh, and Gildersleeve, of course, he was also the official photographer for the Baylor University football team for many decades. And there's a amusing little story that goes that when he wasn't even shooting the team anymore in the 50s, he still just to ca- kind of liked to haunt the sidelines uh, of the field to watch the Bears in action. So one time, uh, this crush of big bruisers came rumbling up the field, and they mowed him down in their haste. And as the younger photographers kind of scrambled to help the little old man back to his feet. He was heard to snarl at them, go away, I'm not hurt. Football players have been running over me on the sidelines <laughs> since before you were born. <laughs> so, you know, uh, although he was a really hard worker and quite the prolific photographer, uh, he, he certainly was no Spartan, though, Conger would say, you know, quote, he was a high-strung, complaining sort of man. <laughs> and uh, in his later years, he was rather bitter. And that's kind of sad, you know, but yeah. Conger said he tried to be a patient, compassionate friend to him in this sad period of his life, you know, kind of out of respect for his place in local history. 
Well, after studying the deep collection of Gildersleeve materials in the Texas collection, you must have come across some personal favorites. Um, do you want to share any of those with us? Oh, yes, because there was one I, I really enjoyed because it came from a, a gal reporter of the Trib uh, during the Great Depression uh, years, and her name was Elizabeth Lux Simpson, and her oral memoirs are uh, there in the Texas collection. So one of her earliest assignments, circa 1930, was with Gildy, she said. She was a young reporter, barely 21 years old, and the police had reported on a murder-suicide in one of the small communities about 15 miles from Waco. So the police wanted Gildy to come and shoot the crime scene for them, and he offered to take her along. And she said, quote, we loaded up his old car and all of the heavy, unwieldy equipment in the back and dashed out there, dashed out there at 35 miles an hour, and I got my story, <laughs> she said. And, of course, she recalled that she had to muster a lot of self-control because it was her first such exposure to the seamy side of the news business. And, quote, I was determined I was not going to turn sissy. (laughs) So then she continued, so we dashed back after Gildy had taken I don't know how many pictures from every angle, the bodies, the room, everything. And I wrote my story. And then Gildy called and said something had happened to his camera, and he didn't get a single print. Oh, no. Yeah, it just goes to show that even a good photographer, and he was, can really make a boo-boo at times. I think his embarrassment was so great that he never really liked to go on assignment with me anymore. I think he thought she had jinxed it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, her her reminiscences uh, noted that although Gildersleeve was a staff reporter himself for a time for some of the papers, he really much preferred the freelance route because that gave him the freedom to pursue his other work like, you know, taking the family portraits, documenting church picnics, going to weddings and all those other social affairs that people are willing to pay nice money for. And uh, so there's this other local legend of Gildersleeve lore that was repeated for many years. And it took place also during the Great Depression, during a state ceremonial occasion for the Shriners. Mm -hmm. So supposedly about 2,500 Shriners were visiting the old Cotton Palace Coliseum. And the old Coliseum had fallen into fallen into hard times and out of regular use for several years because the Cotton Palace Exposition had gone under with the economic downturn and the collapse of the Great Depression. So there wasn't that much demand for the old meeting hall, except for those large state meetings. So, you know, bats and owls and other large flocks of pigeons had made the rafters their roost. And so, you know, you can imagine things were covered with dust and debris and bird droppings very thick up there in the roof area (laughs) amid that lofty perch, you know. So the Shriner potentates had asked Gildy to come and photograph the grand banquet of the assembly one night at the Coliseum. So Gildy and a local electrician worked all that day setting up the famous flash powder guns high in the Coliseum walls so that when the photographer pulled that trigger, his own flash powder would go off simultaneously with all those extra trays around the room to create that even bright light that he really loved for his pictures. So he set up his largest flash powder gun on the Coliseum stage itself. He fixed his camera on the tripod. Just picture all the Shriners in their finest tuxedos and medals, you know, settling into their chairs, waiting for their image to be struck. And then Gildy looked under his black hooded camera, focused the image, braced himself, and pulled the trigger. Boom! <laughs> The flash shattered glass in scores of those upper windows and clattered down along with a rain of droppings and feathers, and the entire Coliseum was enveloped in a big fog of powdery smoke and dust. So Gildy and his electrician friend quickly scooped up their paraphernalia and ducked out the back door of the stage before the smoke could clear and the audience regained their vision. 
So reported, <laughs> reportedly, he hid for days after this fiasco, but he was eventually forgiven by the potentates of the Shriners because after their shock had worn off somewhat, they, they liked that crystal clear image that he captured in that half second before that shower of debris fell into their dinner plates. And I would love to find that photo someday. That is a great story. <laughs> um, did Gildy ever take any uncommissioned photos, like for charities or just for the sake of art? Well, I haven't been able to find any records that he donated any of his work to the nonprofit organizations, for example, but, you know, he did collect shots that clearly were not commissioned. Um, Kent Keith, he was the former director of the Texas Collection, he said in a 1997 interview with the Tribune Herald that, quote, a lot of times Gildersleeve would take out his camera and say, hey, that looks interesting, and just simply take a picture of it. With the great volume of Gildersleeve work available, it sounds like there was enough material possibly to fill a museum. Was there ever any talk of creating a specific museum for his work? Indeed, there were plans for a time in the mid-90s for Sanger Heights neighborhood to turn his old dilapidated home at 2219 Ethel Avenue into a Gildersleeve Museum of sorts. Um, But unfortunately, various funding plans failed to materialize, and the ruins of the house were eventually sold to NeighborWorks Waco, and they tore down the structure in July of 01. Uh, On the spot and on the lot next door, which was actually the home of his sister, who was an osteopathic physician, her name was J. Ellen Gildersleeve, Uh, NeighborWorks Waco eventually erected two homes in the same architectural style of the original structures and named them for the Gildersleeve siblings. And those homes sold in 2003. Terry Joe Ryan, thank you for telling the stories of the life and work of Fred A. Gildersleeve. Hey, it was really great being here. To view some of the tremendous volume of Fred Gildersleeve images at the Texas Collection on the Baylor campus or to read newspapers, term papers about his life and accomplishments, visit the collection at the Carroll Library. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, the Texas Collection at Baylor University.